standing for the gospel reading. Hear the gospel of our Lord, uh, of our Saviour Christ, according to Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 45. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. And then Jesus shouted again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this truly was the Son of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Please be seated. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Lord God, we thank you for the goodness of your holiness. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for training, and for living in righteousness. We pray that that would be the case today as we come to your word in Leviticus. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. For those who um, might not know me or recognize me in a suit, um, I am the Families, Youth, and Children's Worker here in the parish, and it's so great to be with you and to share um, in God's Word this morning from Leviticus. I wonder, in your house, do you have anything that's set aside for special occasions? Particularly in most people's houses, this is plates or cutlery. Um, when we were married, people were, would ask us, um, what are you collecting? And I would say, stamps, I'm, you know, I'm not, not sure what you're talking about. Um, but people obviously would, would collect plates, Demby, and, and, good, and good cutlery. Plates set aside for a special purpose and for a handful of days a year at most, possibly Christmas time or um, other parties that you might have, big parties that are happening. Um, you might even say to your spouse, well, will we get the special plates out today? And you might say, the queen's not coming today, so we're not going to get them out. But certainly these, they might even be in a separate room, and it might even be in a special cabinet in a separate room, um, where people are seen, even seen rarely throughout the year, let alone used. The book of Exodus has things and people and ceremonies that are set aside for special purposes you could say that those plates and our houses are almost set, are set aside, almost holy, and that is what they are in, these, in, this, um, in this book. 
They are wholly set apart for God, where God is set apart from us, perfect in his transcendence and majesty. He commissions these things to be used for the purposes of use for him or to him. Um, but again, we'll get closer to that in his, in his holiness um, throughout this morning. The major theme in Leviticus is holiness. And if we skip over this book, we miss this really strong idea of God's holiness. And this book is difficult to read. Um, If you've been reading the Immersed group, we're probably halfway through Leviticus, and it's difficult to read. It can seem difficult just to get through, and sometimes barbaric in some of the rules that we see. And sometimes as Christians, we either skim the surface of it, or we don't even read it at all. One author, um, Wenham, says that one of the first books that Jewish children study is one of the last books that Christians read. But if we look deeper into the book, we can find some real gold. Another writer, Derek Tibble, says this, Leviticus is good news. It's good news for the sinner who seek pardon. It's good news for the priests who need empowering, for women who are vulnerable, for the unclean who covet cleansing, for the poor who yearn for freedom, for the marginalized who seek dignity, for animals that demand protection, for families that require strengthening, for communities that want fortifying, for creation that stands in need of care. All these issues and more are addressed in a positive way in Leviticus. Now, we can't cover everything that is brought up in the book, obviously, this morning, um, but we'll obviously skim the surface. And if you look deeper into it yourself, read some books about it, or watch videos on maybe even on YouTube about it, you can really increase your faith. But the book starts at the very end of Exodus, obviously. It's chronologically right after Exodus. Nigel talked last week about the laws that we, we hear in the back, on the bottom, the latter half of Exodus, and here we pick up on that, the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and the different items used in the tabernacle. At the very end of Exodus, Moses, the tabernacle is made, everything is ready to go, God's presence enters the tabernacle, but suddenly there's an issue. Not even Moses can enter the tabernacle because of his impurity and because of the impurity and uncleanness and sinfulness of the people. We look at these laws today, and it seems um, to be a lot of things, far-fetched, minutia of detail that seem really strange to us. But if we think about the worship of the time, they become actually rules and regulations that are freeing. Stephen Fry, a well-known atheist, writes um, a lot of books on Greek mythology, and in one of his books he says that the Greek gods were made in man's image. And in this way, the gods of the time, the pagan gods, were made in man's image and reflected the chaotic nature of the world, of a fallen ordered, fallen world. These gods were unpredictable, capricious, and unreliable. You could sacrifice to them, and you didn't know what would happen. You might offer a sacrifice for the fertility of your crops, and that year have a famine, because these gods weren't real, and they were reflecting the chaotic nature of the world. But the sacrifices and the rituals we see in Leviticus are achievable. They are um, distinct, achievable rules for coming into God's presence. Wash a bit here, sacrifice in this way, wear these clothes at the right time, 
and you can come into God's presence. That simply wasn't um, something that anyone else could experience in the world at that time. It means even more when we think of God's holiness as well. God is different from us in His holiness. His holiness is as brilliant and as destructive as the sun, but also life-giving. I don't know if you've enjoyed the sun this weekend. I spent about five minutes just sitting in the garden today basking in the sun, and you can feel its life-giving presence. And God's holiness is a little bit like the sun in that way. Our imperfections mean that in His presence, we would be consumed and destroyed. And that's why Moses can't enter the tabernacle at this time. God's holiness is related also to His trustworthiness. I've been reading um, this book in preparation for this sermon. It's called Holier Than Thou. It's um, quite new by a girl called Jackie Hill Perry. Um, But the whole concept of this book is God is holy, and because God is holy, He is perfect. Because He is perfect, He can't sin, and because He can't sin, He can't sin against us, and therefore He is the most trustworthy being in the universe. And so, God's holiness isn't just the fact that He would consume us, but also His goodness, His perfection, His mercy. The book goes on to talk about how it's His transcendence. God is outside of all of creation. Nothing in creation can affect Him, but He can affect all of creation. We, he is in no need of us, but we are in absolute need of Him. And to prevent His people from being destroyed, God um, comes and gives them these rules so that they can come into His presence. The book of Leviticus is presenting solutions for the sinfulness of of the people, the uncleanness in the people, and their unholiness, so that they can come into His presence again. You may have read in the start of the book, in the Immerse book, it talks about a number of different terms. Holiness, unholiness, cleanness or purity, um, uncleanness or impurity, and sinfulness. And it's useful just to talk about these terms for a second. Holiness is something that is related to God or used in the purpose of God, set apart for His purposes. If an item or person or thing is holy, they are that because they are relating to God and used in His presence or used to minister to and for Him. Unholiness simply relates to anything that is in contact with sinfulness or impurity. Impurity is a bit more strange and a a bit more difficult for us to understand, um, especially today. Um, If you're clean, you can come into God's presence, but if you're unclean, you cannot in Leviticus. We're not certain why some things are pure or impure, clean or unclean, but we can have some idea for why that's the case. For the case of Um, touching dead bodies or bodily fluid, it may have something to do with the fall. These things all seem to relate to life and death, or things that cause life and death, and in that way, they are supposed to be looked at reverently. It could also simply relate to God trying to protect the people from disease and harm. It's not clear why some of the animals are clean or unclean. We're giving a list that these animals are clean, these animals are not clean. We're not sure why that's the case. And the the book of Leviticus doesn't tell us this is why they are unclean, but it could be something to do with pagan worship of the time that those animals um, were related to that. One aspect of this is simply, again, recognizing who God for who He is, and He 
makes these rules the way they are simply because he can. Um, and if he is the God who he says he is, then these people should trust and obey him. God is setting these people apart for a purpose. This nation will be the means by which the whole of creation is redeemed. And so he's setting them apart to be seen as different from everybody else in the whole world. And that is why they are given these distinct rules. No matter why these things are impure or, or not, none of them are sinful. If you are impure because of a skin disease or because of coming in contact with a dead body, you simply have to wash a bit, um, sacrifice something, and wait a couple of days, and then you can come into God's presence again. Sinfulness is slightly different and always requires bloodshed. As Nigel talked last um, week and the the weeks gone by, God presents a number of covenants in the Old Testament that bind the people closer and closer into his presence, but they all require bloodshed. Even the um, Noahic covenant, um, Noah presents a sacrifice to God as a sign and seal of that covenant. But God resolves all of these terms, holiness, unholiness, cleansing, cleanness, uncleanness, and sinfulness in this book of Leviticus. There's about seven different sections in the book, 27 chapters, and each of them covers um, a number of things. The Immerse book says that there's four different themes in the book, but we're going to talk about three. Um, The ceremonies, the priesthood, and the purity laws. And right in the middle of the book, we have two chapters that talk about the Day of Atonement, which is what we're looking at today in our passage. Again, Nigel addressed the laws a lot last week, and it was very helpful. I'll visit that just briefly again, that laws were split into three categories in the Old Testament, ceremonial, civic, and moral. Ceremonial laws related to the sacrificial system of the time, and so in a lot of ways don't relate to us because Jesus died to take all of our sin for himself. Civic laws related generally to the specific time and place were for the people of Israel. But moral laws can be seen to relate to us a lot today. As Nigel said last week, we read every one of these laws in the light of the New Testament before applying it to our lives. And that's a really good practice to look at what does that have to do with the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Let's look at one of these laws, for example. It's a really good practice to look at these laws and look at God's motive behind them. So we may read laws about um, protecting, or or about the poor, about sacrifices for sin and for um, praise offerings, but it's great to look at the motive behind it and why God gave those laws. Let's look at that in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 68, for example, where um, two turtle doves are offered for the purification of a woman after giving birth. But the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over. She is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for the burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl, but if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. What is the motive behind this law? Um, It's a motive that protects the poor. The two rules are here are given that if you have enough money, you you buy a lamb and you buy a, a young pigeon or a dove, 
if you don't have enough money, you buy two pigeons or two doves and you can still come into God's presence. What other nation at the time would have said, if the poor, here's the way that you can come into, the, into your God's presence. And not only that, but this law was taken advantage by Jesus's family in Luke chapter 2. When Jesus is brought to the temple, his family offers two turtle doves. And so not only does it protect the poor, but Jesus exemplified this in his life, that he, was, he made use of this law. And so there's laws that protect the poor, protect animals, protect the world, as we said earlier on. But we're in chapter 16 and 17, looking at the Day of Atonement. And this was one ceremony once a year that was to cleanse all of the people from their sin. And it went something like this. On this day, the priest would take two goats and a bull. He would wash himself thoroughly and put on the sacred clothing and sacrifice the bull for his sins and for the sins of his family. So now he can come into God's presence. And in God's presence, he enters the Holy of Holies. He takes one of the goats and sacrifices it and, place, and brings this into God's presence. He sprinkles the blood on the lid of the, of the ark, which is the mercy seat. And this is to cover the blood of all of the people of God. They also take a second goat, which is named the scapegoat. That's where we get the word scapegoat from. A individual person was taken um, to, to pray, to, to cast this goat out into the wilderness. But before that happens, they pray over the goat and offer all of the sins of the people into the ears of the goat. And then it's sent away into the wilderness. And in saying that, God is sending the people, people's sin away. It's really interesting that this was a day of rest. Not, no one else in the whole nation of Israel was allowed to do any work except the priests. And it seems strange to us, and again, a little barbaric, but this is such a gracious gift from God. It's meant to bring the whole congregation of Israel back into good standing with God again, to make it so all of them can dwell in his presence again. Some commentators say that the whole purpose of salvific history, so the salvation plan of God, is to make it so that people can come into his presence again. In the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God, and God wants creation to get back into that place again. And here, that's exactly what God is doing in instructing these things. He's giving clear, achievable list of instructions so that they can come into God's presence. A writer, Morales, says that the central point of the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, is Leviticus. And this chapter sits at the very center and heart of Leviticus. It all points to God opening a way for humanity to dwell in his divine presence again. The essence and heart of that in the Pentateuch's theology is the Day of Atonement, is this ceremony. For us, in light of God's holiness, when we come into God's presence, a lot of us will look at our sin and want to run. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, um, Isaiah has a vision of coming into God's presence, and he says immediately to God, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." And even Peter, in Luke chapter um, 5, verse 8, he's in a boat with Jesus. Jesus performs a miracle, and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I don't know about you, but a lot of us 
when we see God and we see our sin, we want to run in the other direction. We see how good he is, we see how bad we are, and we run away from him. But also we run away from other people. When we know that we've done something wrong, we hide, we scheme, we do whatever we can to make it so that they can't know who we truly are. Because if only they knew, they would never, never love me. But Leviticus shows us that that is the opposite case for God. A lot of us think that when we sin, God doesn't want to be with us anymore, that, we, that God can't be in our presence. And that's the case in that God's presence would destroy us but God wants to make a way so that we can come to him again. In, the, in Scripture, it says that whenever we sin, we should run to God instead of running away from him. He makes a way for his people to come close to him again. And he brings, he says, bring your sin to me. I have made a way. Come close to me again, just as in the garden. The tabernacle is full of imagery of the garden, plants and images of angels, showing that God wants to bring it back to the place where he was with them in the garden. And this is a wonderful piece of news for the people in Israel, but this was once a year, and only one person could enter the most holy place where God's presence was, and animals had to die in their place every year. But then Jesus came. He is the perfect fulfillment of everything that Leviticus tells us in shadows and shades. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself through his blood. Derek Tittle, again, um, chatted about him earlier, said that the book of Leviticus contains three, um, three things, a statement, a command, and a promise. God says in, a, in his statement, I am holy, he says in his command, go and be holy. And he says in his promise, I will make you holy. And Jesus perfectly fulfills all of these things. Jesus is holy. We saw him perfectly revealed in the transfiguration in the gospels. But he also says, a scribe comes up to him and says, good teacher. Um, why? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only one is good. Saying that he is God, and he is good. Nigel's talked about Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, um, where he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And as Colossians says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, and so he was perfect. Second Corinthians says, for our sake he, was made, he made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so he is holy and he lived a holy life. He perfectly fulfills the laws of Leviticus, and therefore he fulfills the command to be holy. And he is the one who fulfills the promise that says, I will make you holy. In John's Gospel, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, dying on the cross, takes away all of our wrongdoing and takes it on himself. And like the goat traveling into the wilderness, he takes it away.
He's also the one who makes the unclean clean. In, the, in Leviticus, if you touch something unclean, you are made unclean. In the Gospels, Jesus does the opposite. He touches the lepers. He touches those who have um, a flow of blood, and he makes them clean again. He's the perfect lamb who died once and for all. So as in our gospel reading, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn in two so that God's presence was opened up to the whole world. He's our great high priest, as Hebrews said, who mediates between us and God, like Aaron coming into God's presence. Jesus is in God's presence now, interceding for us. Know his promise today that he will make you holy. Don't run from God when you sin, but run to him. Confess and be free. In James chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. And in Matthew's gospel, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't it so interesting that on the Day of Atonement, one of God's biggest commands was do no work. Rest, come into my presence again. Know his um, command today to live a holy life and go and be holy. First Peter says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that you come that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says, you must be holy for I am holy. And that's a quote from Leviticus. Know his statement today that God is holy. And in his perfect holiness, he is perfectly trustworthy and merciful. Know his command and go and take this command seriously to live your life as a holy people. We still have that call today to live as holy people, to bring God's kingdom into the world and to live as mediators for him. In all of this, Know the holy and perfect transcendent God of Leviticus that loves you enough to make a way for you to come into his presence again. And know that one day this will perfectly be made the case. In Revelation 21 verse 23, it says that we will enter God's presence if we know and love him. That in that land there will be no sun because of the radiance of God's holiness. In the new Eden, we will know him and be known by him, and we will have peace once more. I'll just read from the, the close of this book to finish. Looking to Christ, we too are set apart from the world and things in it. To God we belong, giving him our bodies as a living sacrifice, our mouths as him, his ambassadors, our feet to bring his good news, believing God to be the all-satisfying bread of life that he is. He fills us and frees us from being enslaved to everything and everybody. 
Being satisfied in God makes us totally independent of our environment, since we are no longer needy of people or circumstances to make us happy or whole. As people who are free, we are liberated to love as generously as God does, not repaying evil for evil, but turning our cheek while pursuing moral purity with all that we have, clothed in the newness of Christ. We put to death, therefore, what is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, and idolatry, and put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. This heaven-empowered love towards God and our neighbors may set us at odds with the world around us. But even then, as God's peace is ours, ours is too settled and safe. It is the world that Christ has overcame, and through Christ we will overcome it too. Of the saints, he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I am also conquered and set down with my Father on his throne. And there, finally, after we have breathed our last, we will see why our dying is gain. Opening those eyes that were once blind, now seeing, he will finally appear. And do you know what will happen next? We know that when he appears, we shall see him like he is. Beholding, we become holy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are holy. That in your holiness you are transcendent, you are morally pure, but you are also merciful and loving, and trustworthy. God, would you speak to us of these three statements today? Would you show us your holiness? Would you help us to take your command to be holy? And would you help us to hold on to the promise that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit and make us holy? Help us not to do this on our own, but to do this with your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. And we continue in prayer as we join together in the prayer of humble access that begins, we do not presume. We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord, whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. We stand together. Christ is our peace. He has reconciled us to God in one body by the cross. We meet in His name and share His peace. The peace of the Lord be always with you.
and we join together in singing, My God, your table here is spread. <laughs> 